This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we're going to discuss uh, Georgia, Atlanta, Georgia, which of course is in the news uh, every single day, perhaps in the news more than anyone would want to see it in the news. It was the center of uh, one of the most important contested races uh, in our recent presidential election, and the future of the United States Senate hinges on two Senate races in Georgia right now. And the most uh, important uh, and largest voting area in Georgia is, of course, the area around Atlanta. And today we're going to talk to uh, my colleague and distinguished scholar, Shirley Thompson, uh, who grew up in Atlanta, about the changes she has seen in Atlanta and about what those changes have to tell us about the push and pull, the tensions, the progress, the regressions in our democracy today. What do we learn about the changes in our democracy and the challenges we confront uh, from looking at the historical evolution of Atlanta as seen through the eyes of uh, Shirley Thompson with her, her scholarly and personal view. Uh, Shirley is a distinguished scholar. She's an associate professor of American studies here at the University of Texas at Austin. She's also the associate director of the John Warfield Center for African and African-American studies. She's a scholar of race, culture, law, economy. She really wonderfully brings all of these uh, perspectives together in understanding the evolution of American society. Uh, her first book is called Exiles at Home, The Struggle to Become American in Creole, New Orleans. Um, my wife would say Shirley is one of these very smart scholars, smart, smarter than me, who chooses to study places that are interesting to visit, like New Orleans. <laughs> and, and Shirley's new book project. <laughs> Shirley's new book project is uh, titled No More Auction Block for Me, African-Americans and the Problem of Property. She wrote a, uh, an article this month in uh, New York Review of Books called Georgia on My Mind, a beautiful uh, literary and analytical piece on the changes she has seen in Atlanta. And that's, in a sense, the, the starting off point for our uh, discussion today. Uh, Shirley, thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, before we turn to our discussion with Shirley, we have, of course, Mr. Zachary's A Scene-Setting Poem. Uh, what is the title of your poem for this week, Zachary? Well, it's actually a song, and it's entitled Don Quixote of Oakland and Sancho of the South Side. Okay, well, uh, let's hear some Don Quixote. <laughs> now, Don Quixote, he leaves his village, his public housing block in the inner city, he rides right out of Oakland on a horse of a broken Chevy, and he finds himself in the desert, searching for the edge of a reservoir levee. Now Don Quixote, he is searching for the crusader of justice, but all he finds is broken old cities, old cars, and people, just us. And he's wandering with his Sancho, some skinny kid from the south side, and together they are looking for something true from before we lied. Oh, the sun is still bright on the streets of Joshua Tree tonight, and Don Quixote comes a-looking for freedom. And all he finds is the old backstreet wisdom and a series of aging pioneers. Oh, and Sancho is the son of what happens when racism has its fun, a product of Jesus, the Stevenson Expressway, and some dream hidden on the dark side of the moon. 
Now there they are, the hoped-for knights errant of Christendom, and they are hunting for some reason for the way things seem to be done. And they are the sons, and their sisters are the daughters of Vietnam, and some memory of when it all went up in flames. Oh, the moon is dressed like a fair lady above the parking lots of Schenectady, and there they come, two kids like they came out of a book. But they came from asphalt and hard knocks, looking for the heart that went away. And they say a black man was the president when they were born, but he must be a lie or a long gone guy, someone only the old folks mourn. Now here they go with a guitar and a cellular phone, followers of the road towards Liberty County or searching for friendship in the Texas toad. And they are wandering the mountains of Avalon, but it's Avalon, New Jersey, and it isn't even funny anymore. They pull their finger swords at the sight of evil overlords, but they're just stop signs in the brush. Oh, the tide is wide among the sands near St. Augustine, and there they are, swimming among the empty ghosts, holding lanterns, empty beer bottles, making democratic toasts, planning nothing for nobody but freedom. And here they come. And maybe they will die in a prison cell regretting their old-fashioned quest, or maybe they will pass kidnapped in some swamp still thinking they knew best. Or maybe they will cry themselves into eternity with open wounds and high-flying yellow balloons that can barely get off the ground. Oh, the sun is still bright on the streets of Joshua Tree tonight, and Don Quixote comes a-looking for freedom. And all he finds is the old backstreet wisdom and a series of aging pioneers. Oh, and Sancho is the son of what happens when racism has its fun, a product of Jesus, the Stevenson Expressway, and some dream hidden on the dark side of the moon. My mind is reeling, Zachary. There are so many wonderful contemporary and literary references there. What is your poem really about? My poem is really about uh, this sort of endearing image of of, of two uh, people in, in, in America uh, sort of wandering like Don Quixote and Sancho Panza and looking for the promises that our country has ha- has made and, and seeing so many of them broken uh, and contrasting it really with the sort of, uh, the sort of hidden... Uh, pain beneath the veneer of prosperity across our country. Well, that's a perfect spot to turn to, to Shirley Thompson. Uh, Sh- Shirley, I think your piece in the New York Review of Books in part inspired Zachary's poem. Uh, tell us a bit about your adventure growing up in Atlanta, because I think it's so revealing about our society. Yes, I, I want to thank Zachary for that poem, because it, it captures so much of the spirit of my piece and where my mind was where I was when I was writing it. Um, you know, just to think about how the textures of specific places um, kind of spark uh, both memories of the past. You fall into kind of a trap hole of of uh, a trapdoor of memory, um, but also um, it inspires uh, freedom dreams. You know, in thinking about the future and and how things could be different. And and thank you. So, yeah, so I uh, was inspired to write this piece um, because, you know, I, I, I was losing sleep over the election like everyone else, right, and um, was glued to my phone. Um, it had been three days since the actual election, and I was just watching these, you know, very small batches of, of um, votes come in. Um, and add to the totals. Um, and so I was watching this and also feeling nostalgic too about um, my childhood home um, given the pandemic, right? Um, so it's been about a year since I've been back home to Atlanta to visit my mother 
to visit my um, brother and his family, my sister-in-law. This is a trip I often take, you know, multiple times a year. And so I was, I was sort of in this nostalgic mode, um, watching this very exciting election unfold, um, you know, sort of notch by notch in front of me. And so uh, thinking about the places that were beginning to matter, um, beginning to sort of make themselves known on the national scene. And they were spaces that were really familiar to me, having grown up in them. But I think fly under the radar when people sort of think about Atlanta, think about urban areas, think about Black communities in urban areas. They often, you know, sort of don't really um, understand the the nuances of the place uh, because um, American culture rarely drills down into the textures of of, of space and place right. um, to to understand how you know kind of people are eking out um, their lives there. So um, all of these things were kind of swirling around in my my mind. Um, as I was watching the the election unfold, uh, one of the really moving parts of your piece, I thought, were, was your reflections on uh, busing, uh, being uh, a child who came of age, you and your brother, uh, in Atlanta. When finally uh, Atlanta started to at least make an effort to integrate schools, and it's of course a, a, a project that is that has largely failed in cities like Atlanta and Austin and elsewhere. And you write, uh, for us, you and your brother, the bus was a world unto itself, setting off, uh, setting out before sunrise. It wound its way through the East Side, picking up the cast of characters who, for three years, would be my fellow travelers in this weird exper- experiment in token integration. Uh, m- many people don't understand what busing was like, the challenges, uh, what, what the experience was like. Uh, I, I, I think your reflections on that, surely are really important for us today. Right. I think when people think about busing, they think about it from a point of view of um, some sort of deficit um, in the black experience, um, that blacks don't have access um, to resources. They don't have access to the same, you know, kind of opportunities that white kids have. And on the face of it, that's true to some extent. But there's also a sense in which um, <clears throat> busing required us to to give up something um, that was really sort of special to us in order to you know, um, participate in what was essentially an experiment, um, the sort of completion of the promise of, of Brown v. Board with, quote, all deliberate, all deliberate speed, right? I mean, that was, that was the timetable. Right. And that's what happened. Um, you know, folks deliberated and deliberated. <laughs> but finally, 25 years later, Atlanta, um, Metro Atlanta has a busing plan in place, um, uh, for us, the you know the children of parents who um, went to segregated schools, um, you know, sort of had to enact um, that plan, um, and we did it. We kind of, you know, did it um, really by jumping into the deep end because no one knew how it would pan out. Our parents um, hadn't had an, any experience with integrated schools. Um, and, uh, certainly, uh, those kids in the white schools where we were going didn't have much experience around 
uh, Black people by design. So we were kind of the, you know, the bridge, (laughs) if you will, between um, Black Atlanta and white Atlanta. Um, We, you know, elementary school kids bore that burden. Um, And it was stressful in ways that are predictable and also um, that were uh, quotidian as well as dramatic, (laughs) right? Um, But there were also moments of grace and pleasure and solidarity and community among us um, that that was really special. Um, So I wanted to capture that paradox of... Um, you know, sort of the fear and anxiety, um, you know, that um, really recalls the the sort of anxiety of someone like, um, uh, you know, uh, the Little Rock Nine or, you know, the, the kids who integrated schools back in the 50s and 60s. Um, but... Uh, so that was there definitely, uh, but uh, there was also a kind of sense of excitement and adventure um, and intimacy um, on that bus among those of us who were making that journey. What does it look like today? Uh, how has the face of integration, particularly in terms of schools, uh, changed since when, when you were in school, when you were on that school bus? Well, I don't think that it's much different. Um, actually, um, you know, schools are still, uh, terribly segregated in most major, um, metro areas. That's certainly true here in Austin. Um, uh, and there are various plans, uh, one, one of which is named majority to minority (laughs) or M to M, um, here in Austin and elsewhere to, you know, to have kids, um, mix it up or have families, you know, kind of choose to, to have a kind of uh, integrated experience. But for the most part, um, schools remain pretty segregated. And I, I think that's due to the, the dynamics of white flight, which um, continue. Um, the 70s um, and 80s are kind of the paradigmatic moment of, of white flight. Um, and Kevin Cruz has a really, um, you know, sort of important history of Atlanta entitled white flight uh, yes. because yes. It, it sort of tracks these demographic shifts in the wake of the civil rights movement um, and and shows how whites uh, continually um, you know sort of sought to barricade themselves in homogenous communities and, and hoard resources um, for uh, themselves and their children um, uh, and, and so it's a dynamic that you know, is ongoing, I think, Um, you still see that sort of hoarding of resources, especially around schools um, in most urban areas. Um, One of the striking elements of this also uh, that you touch on in your piece and that Kevin Cruz and others have written about also is the overlap between the school issues and suburbanization. You, You talk about how your family moved from DeKalb to Gwinnett County, I think these are all counties we now know well, having watched those <laughs> those votes come in <laughs> minute by minute, as you described. Um, uh, but as as your parents and other uh, families from diverse backgrounds move into these other almost suburban oases, then the the whites leave is is part of the story, right? 
Yeah, and I think what's so interesting, Atlanta is in some ways a kind of microcosm of that uh, because uh, the city is so suburban um, and the process has been, I mean, we're, we're sort of at the, the third or fourth cycle of um, you sort of uh, of dislocation and, and reshuffling of populations um, into suburbia um, such that they're established black suburbs as well as white suburbs, as well as, you know, kind of suburbs that are gentrifying as if they're urban and suburbs from which whites are fleeing because they're afraid of the impact of, of um, a kind of proximity to blackness on, um, on their property value. So there's this perceived, um, you know, kind of um, danger uh, for them that their property will will lose value if blacks move in in, in large numbers. Um, and it becomes, like I say in the article, a kind of self-fulfilling prof- prophecy um, when you, you know, try to sell um, property, when so many people in a neighborhood suddenly try to sell, <laughs> then that sort of tanks the property values. Um, so, you know, this... Um, this uh, the suburban landscape of Atlanta has been, um, you know, kind of a, a kind of provided a model for understanding suburban life in the rest of the country, and in a in a more com- complex way than is usually talked about in the media. I think, and you know, Trump kind of um, you know sort of betrayed this this sort of lack of knowledge of what suburbia is um, when he. Was appealing to the suburban mom, um, you know, and, and begging her to like him um, in a way that that uh, you know sort of showed that he believes still, and I think a lot of other people do that suburban moms are you know kind of middle class white right. um, soccer moms, you know, right. homogenous group of people, whereas suburbia um, today is very diverse racially, um, ethnically. Um, um, in terms of class, um, status. Um, so there's a lot more, you know, kind of heterogeneity in, in suburbs um, these days. Um, and I think Atlanta is kind of at the vanguard of the, these demographic shifts in suburbia um, just because of how long the trend um, of white flight and um, continued white flight, these, these, you know, sort of several cycles now of it, um, has affected um, the neighborhoods around around um, Atlanta, and, and so I guess that that brings us surely to to a really important question that I think you're 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 so uniquely positioned to explain because of your deep scholarly background and your personal experience. How do we understand the voters then? in these communities you're describing, voters, quite frankly, like your parents, who you talk about in your piece, right, who have moved into these suburban communities, have been upwardly mobile, are very highly educated, uh, but still not a, not accepted in white Atlanta or what whatever has become of white Atlanta. How do we understand what they're voting for, what they're looking for in our democracy today? Well, I think that, um, you know, one of the, the key thing, so I think understand about um, black voters in Atlanta is how diverse um, that voting um, block is, if you can even call it a block, um, and how um, just how differentiated and stratified uh, black 
Atlanta is and has been, and and its politics has really reflected that. Um, you know, Atlanta is famously uh, known as the Black Mecca, or a you know a powerful Black Mecca kind of um, you know node of Black uh, political power, um, economic power, cultural power, um, and you know that sort of. Uh, that status, that's the, the city status as a, a Mecca kind of um, arose in the 70s, you know, in the wake of white flight, um, uh, uh, black Atlantans kind of took the reins of control. Um, but what, what also happened is a kind of, um, a kind of, uh, there's, there's a disconnect between um, the interests of the black elite and more sort of working class or impoverished uh, black uh, communities in Atlanta um, that makes uh, the politics there very complex and dynamic. Um, there's a sense in which the black elite needs uh, the working and uh, poor population um, in order to, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, kind of enact its 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 plans and its policies and exercise its interests. Um, but at the same time, um, uh, you know, sort of working class folks realize um, that there's a divergence there, um, and it 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 sort of um, comes to a head in, in key moments. Um, one of these moments was the the sort of mobilization. Um, around Atlanta's bid for the Olympics in 1996 mm-hmm. and how the uh, black elite, um, uh, the interest of the black elite uh, began to diverge really sharply from those of, of the masses of black Atlantans um, and really worked to kind of set the stage for um, dispossession um, and a kind of pushing out of black um, poor and working class people out of the city into the southern suburbs, primarily in eastern suburbs, um, so that you get a kind of pushback um, from um, middle uh, working class folks and, and impoverished folks, um, and and a, a kind of point at which they um, have been able to organize around themselves. Um, so there's a very uh, you know kind of there. There are various kinds of of organized uh, black interest groups in the city um, that are vying for a public um, recognition and public uh, voice, and um, and sometimes uh, they forge strategic alliances um, um, that you know may or may not hold up. Um, so there's a, a kind of political savvy uh, within um, Black Atlanta communities that I think lends itself to the kind of organizing and mobilization and public debate and discussion um, that has produced um, this rallying of support behind um, the Democratic Party um, this time. And and what... As you see it, in insofar as this coalition that that Stacey Abrams and others have worked so hard to put together, 
What do you see as as its particular goals? Obviously, it doesn't overlap in every way with right. what uh, President-elect Joe Biden is arguing for. So how do we understand where, where that coalition is placing its priorities? Well, I think it's, it's very grassroots. It's building um, organizations at um, a kind of almost neighborhood um, community level um, that people can use to sort of um, participate in uh, electoral politics at the presidential and, you know, sort of federal level. Um, but also these same organizations um, can be used to lobby for very specific, more immediate needs at the local level as well. So I think it, it in building infrastructures that are, are legible to people um, in their neighborhoods, a wide range of people, not just the, you know, the kind of political and cultural elites who obviously have a lot to benefit by, you know, sort of participation and democratic, uh, you know, sort of pract- practices and structures, but um, people who otherwise might might have felt left out um, are beginning to come together um, to advocate for for their for their interests as well. Um, and hopefully they're, they're building, you know, these, um, sort of organizational infrastructures that, um, are useful to them, um, in whatever way that takes shape at any given moment. Um, and I think Abrams and not just Abrams, but, you know, a host of other, um, grassroots organizations and mobilizations, um, um, are, are, are kind of filling those gaps, um, and, and building a structure, um, that, you know, hopefully it will last, I think, um, beyond this election, um, but hopefully can be, um, sort of used for a wider range of, of civic goods. Well, and, and that, that takes us to the, the, the question I wanted to, to close with, Shirley. We, we always like to try to take the history that we discuss each week on the podcast and, and show how it can often offer hope and, and offer pathways forward because there's, there's so much disillusion and so much negativity around us. Right. Uh, and I think history offers, offers some of that, but it also offers a reason for hope. Uh, what, what are some of the most hopeful signs that you see? What are the things you're, you're hoping to see more of? Well, this sort of grassroots organization gives me hope. Um, when um, people who otherwise, um, you know, or who have in the past felt left out of the process find their voice in their particular ways, um, that gives me hope because it, 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 it means that they, you know, kind of, um, you know, in exercising their, you know, kind of power at this moment, you know, kind of might be inspired to, you know, kind of um, create other moments, other opportunities for expressing themselves. I will say um, that my hope is, it's a, a kind of Du Boisian hope. Um, he has this passage in Souls of Black Folk where he talks about a hope, um, unhopeful, but not hopeless. So it's a kind of way of uh, hoping against hope my father, the minister would say, um, <laughs> it's a practice of, of continuing to hope, even when things don't look great, that uh, I think may take root in a, in a larger, you know, sort of in, in a more sustained way 
um, in Atlanta. And I say hopeless hope because we're still talking about a pattern of white flight that is very kind of destructive and very aggressive that builds barriers and boundaries and polices and surveils them. Um, And so I think in these suburbs, you really see, you know, kind of the lines of battle being drawn up. And that's what kind of, you know, pushes back against the hope and makes it unhopeful. Um, But it's not hopeless because I really do feel that Black communities in Atlanta and elsewhere, if organized or are up to the task, and they they know what they're fighting against. If I might, I, I I wanted to read two paragraphs near the end of your piece because I think they capture it better than anything I've read, and I feel like I've <laughs> tried to read everything available that I can get my hands on. That these two paragraphs surely so beautifully, I thought summed up what you just said: this mix of 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 hope uh, and continued concern, uh, and and maybe we might even say a mix of optimism and pessimism. Um, you, you're talking about your communication with your mom while you were watching the election returns come in. Uh, Suddenly my phone beeps, jarring me awake again. I see a text from my mom who has also been up all night eagerly tracking the Georgia returns. I think we were all up. Like me, she knows that in a world marked by gentrification and white flight, changing demographics aren't always what they are cracked up to be. And diversity is often just a snapshot of a single moment in in longer, more nefarious processes. She wonders anxiously, will we pull this off? She's talking about this election, but she's also looking ahead as someone who participated in some of the earliest sit-ins of the civil rights movement while the college student in North Carolina. She believes in the ability of astute organizers such as Stacey Abrams and the thousands of others who have mobilized black voters, you've just been talking about this, surely, to produce lasting change in the balance of the electorate, but also for black people in their everyday efforts to claim space. But she also knows that every inch of progress will be contested in an updated variation on what segregationists of old boldly dubbed massive resistance. Those committed to white flight are are a destructive lot. In ways large and small, they would rather destroy their own property than cede ground to their black fellow citizens. This this is your hopeless hope, right? Right. Zachary, I, I, I'm curious as as someone who who pays close attention to these issues because this is very similar to many of the issues we confront in Austin and in other cities around the country. This is American democracy today, front and center, and, and it's all its warts, all its possibilities, all its limits. Um, and I know you've thought about this, particularly your public school that that turns out to be pretty segregated. Um, you know, how do you react to all this? Do you see in Atlanta hope, and do you see lessons for your generation going forward? I do. I think that my generation has made a lot of progress at seeing the uh, racial barriers uh, in our society and particularly those that that affect our our, our nation as a whole. But I do think there really is a struggle to get people to recognize the uh, racial injustice in their own communities and the very injustice that they benefit from. I think also it's it's really hard to get people out of old modes of thinking about race and about racial justice. And I think our history uh, teaching has really failed us in the sense that we have for too long been taught that the struggle for racial justice ended in 1968 uh, and that, uh, and that the, the, the work is already done when, when it's so clear uh, every single day that that's not true. I think that's so well said, Zachary, and that follows so well from, from the lessons in Shirley's piece and her conversation with us today. Yeah. 
Shirley, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, I really think you've highlighted uh, both the possibilities and the limitations and and the way we we think about these inherited structures and how we have to recognize them and work through them. I think that's really, really what you're doing in in a brilliant, thoughtful, and eloquent way. So thank you, Shirley. You're welcome. It it was my pleasure. Uh, It was a lot of fun. And and I uh, I have a new poem I want to look at. So thanks to Zachary for that. We will we will send you a copy of his of his poem. It's it's one of the features of our podcast. I think people mm-hmm. often listen for his poems uh, when they when we talk to them. They 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 mention that most of all. <laughs> thank you, Zachary, for your poetry and for your insights. And most of all, thank you to our listeners. Thank you for joining us for this week of this is democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.